friends, and welcome to the Wisdom for Life broadcast. This is Pastor Glenn with another episode that we hope will bless Hello, everyone. You. Thanks for tuning in and watching online. We are going to be diving right into part three of Gideon and his story. Unfortunately, tonight his story turns sour. And in fact, that's the title of this Bible study tonight when good goes bad and sour. Hey, would you take a moment and just say a word of prayer with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, God, as we turn to your word tonight and learn, God, learn of your spirit and learn of the wisdom that you might have for our lives. Father, we want to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would instruct us and lead us by your spirit to remind us of all that we need to learn of what your son has said and what you have said in your word. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Specifically tonight, we're going to be kind of having a cursory study of chapters 8 through 10. And we'll look briefly at a few of these verses. But I want to ask you, when is the last time you went to the refrigerator and uh, you got that door open and you looked in and you thought, well, I just poured myself a a bowl of cereal, I wonder if there's any milk. And you look inside and maybe you pick the carton up and uh, the jug up and you look at the side and you, you wonder, you know, is the date good enough? And maybe you're just right on the date uh, of that milk or, or maybe you're just one day uh, beyond that date and you think, well, I'll give it the sniff test. That's what I call it in my house, the sniff test. And so you you kind of unscrew that cap and you look inside and then you go to take a little sniff and you think, oh, wow, man, that, that is bad. That milk is spoiled. And it's only, it almost hits you like when you go to get a, uh, a shot from the doctor and, and you just uh, you just can't wait to put the cap back on and, and get that milk out of the house. Well, Gideon's life tonight, as we're talking about him, has gone bad. Gideon's leadership is spoiled. And unfortunately, uh, not every story in the Bible ends well. And Gideon uh, starts one way and ends another way. And after the Midianites are destroyed and after 300 Israelites face them using the strategy that God gives them with the torches and, and the uh, bowls and also the trumpets, uh, the Midianites destroy themselves. Israel uh, has won the day. They are victorious and without one single casualty. Uh, you would think Gideon would come back and everyone would worship the Lord. But really, the next issue that Israel faces is actually from Gideon. His leadership is spoiled. And it's because the glory starts to get to his head. And he's uh, too many days past his due, like that milk in the fridge. He, so Gideon is spoiled and it spoils, it begins to spoil the rest, the rest of the nation. We're going to break that down, how Gideon comes back from that battle with his 300 men and what he ends up doing. And the spoiling in his life actually is attached to some political ambitions that he begins to have. And when he gets back home in Israel, there's a, there's a couple of of uh, tribes that he confronts. One's actually a tribe, another's a, a, a town, a city. One is the, the tribe of Ephraim. And Gideon, Gideon responds to them with flattery because they are rich, 
because they're wealthy. He actually woos them over. They're upset because they were left out of the great victory. And uh, instead of confronting them for not showing up to the battle the way they should, uh, he, he confronts them with flattery and woos them over. And then the other one is the people or the town of Succoth. And they are poor people. They are people that are uh, not of wealthy means. And Gideon treats them completely different. He, If you flip the pancake here, he comes to them and he chastises them. He actually uh, does some pretty horrible things to their people. He, they, they're wrapped in briars. Uh, they're beaten. Uh, they level the town of Penuel. And uh, they kill all the inhabitants there. And so you can see there's certainly a double standard there with, with Gideon. His ambition is no longer to bring Israel back to the Lord and to save Israel and to deliver Israel from its enemies. His ambition now is political and his ambition now is to be famous and to lead and, and to have power and glory. His response is certainly inconsistent and it's based more on what is best for him than what God wants. Gideon needed the tribe of Ephraim because he wanted to get their money. So he flatters them. But Succoth and Peniel, however, were weaker than him. And so he didn't need them. So he just wipes them out. And uh, he doesn't really care about the people at this moment. He's caring about power. And maybe the bigger point here is this, that he didn't consult God at all. He doesn't pray at all. He doesn't come back from the battle, give God glory, spend time in prayer, uh, giving God appreciation and praise. He just comes back and goes right for the glory and the power. You compare those two worldviews that are going on here. And I wanna show you both of them here because there's two. There's a worldview going on that says success is joining Jesus wherever he is and then giving him the praise and the glory for it. And then there's another worldview that would say, success is doing whatever I want and asking God to bless it and then seeking the glory and the praise from it. Those two worldviews are diametrically opposed. Uh, many of us today don't realize that what we're hoping to be successful in isn't for the Lord and isn't for people. It's actually for our own personal gain. It's also it's actually for our personal uh, power and, and and also for our own glory and not the glory of the Lord and to help the people. So if we would would just dive right into chapter eight verse twenty two, and in reading chapter eight uh, verse twenty two here, we get this story as it starts. It says, "Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also." For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And then jump to verse 23, it says, But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I want you to see that there's a little bit of a start there that's a good start. Gideon isn't spoiled just yet. He's willing to tell the people that only God should be king. And this is how God wanted it. Uh, if you remember when Saul was chosen to be king, much later, uh, this was something that the people continually begged Samuel for a king over and over again. And God, to teach Israel a lesson, actually gave them a king in Saul. Later, David was chosen as king and uh, was set up in a way that God 
would want the nation to be run. But it, the original plan for Israel wasn't to have a king. It was for God to be king over their lives. So, so far so good, but that's a very brief moment in time because really quick, Gideon starts to switch over into wanting the glory and, and power and glory mode. Look at verse 30, it says, Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. So, so he's saying one thing with his mouth. He's saying, listen, only God needs to be your king, but he's doing another. He's out having uh, children with over 70 women. And uh, this is something only kings uh, did at that time. And if you think about it, uh, look at verse 31. It says, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he called his name Abimelech. Now, Abimelech means my dad is king. So while Gideon is telling all the people in Israel, only God should be your king, with his actions, he's doing another thing. He's actually allowing one of his sons to be called, my dad is king. And so he's really got a different heart than what's coming out of his mouth. His intentions and his motivations are different and it's starting to show in his actions. And jump back to verse uh, uh, 24 here for a second. And it says, and Gideon said to them, every one of you must give me your earrings from the spoil. You see, when the Midianites were defeated, they left behind a spoil. And so Israel came in and got their golden earrings. And uh, Gideon at this moment is saying, listen, only God should be your king, but I'm gonna have 70 wives. I'm gonna have all these sons. I'm even gonna name one of my sons only, or even gonna name one of my sons. My dad is king. And by the way, I also want the spoils from the war too. And so we can see Gideon's heart here isn't exactly what he's telling the people. And then let's look at verse 27. It says, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city. And move over just a bit. It says, and all of Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now, what's an ephod? An ephod is something only the Levitical priests should wear. It's only the priests from the tribe of Levites should wear. And it's something they wear as they go and they consult the Lord and they mediate on behalf of the people to God. And so that's something that is exclusive for a priest. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see that kings are supposed to do what kings do and priests are supposed to do what priests do. And they weren't supposed to do what each other does. They weren't supposed to cross those uh, lanes. They were supposed to stay in their lanes. Not until Jesus comes do we have a king who can also be a priest and be able to do it in a way that brings humility and love and care for the people. And so that's why they were supposed to be separate. Gideon isn't a king, but now he doesn't just want what the kings have while he's telling the people another thing. He also wants what the priests have. And so he makes himself a golden ephod from the gold that they get from the spoil. It becomes a snare to him and his family and to the people. And the Bible says the people whore after it. Um, very strong language there. But what that simply means is, is they begin to have a spiritual intimacy and relationship with it that they should only have with the Lord. And that's the way God sees idolatry, by the way. God sees idolatry as unfaithfulness. He sees himself as our husband. 
And he sees the church even today as the bride of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we give our hearts and our, our worship to someone or something else, to God, that's unfaithfulness. That's breaking our vows. That's breaking covenant with God. And so that's why the Bible says that about the ephod and about Gideon. And uh, so Gideon has this all put together and he's really consolidating both the priestly influence, the kingly influence, all into one so that he can remain above everyone in all things. You know, the interesting thing that happens in this story is this. You see that with Gideon, we see something that never is before seen in the book of Judges. And that is the people fall away from God while the judge is still reigning. That's, that's interesting because the pattern that is replete throughout the book of Judges is that a judge dies, the people fall away from God. They begin to serve idols. God raises up an enemy that comes to resist them. They cry out to God. God brings a judge to deliver them. And they serve the Lord until the judge dies. Not this time with, not this time with Gideon. Actually, uh, Gideon is a major part of the problem now because he seeks the glory and the power and not to serve God and give God the praise alone. You see from Gideon's life some clear indicators that he has made it all about him. When you, by the way, see these things in your life, you can see them as warning signs or red flags as well. Let's look at a couple of them. The first is infrequent prayer. We don't see anything in the story after the battle with the Midianites of Gideon praying to God or consulting God. Or even, number two, getting counsel at all. He doesn't talk to any of the priests. He doesn't seek a prophet. He doesn't seek God's word. He doesn't seek anything from God at all about what to do next. He simply follows his own heart, his own desires, his own passions, and expects Israel and expects God to support that. And that is a major problem not seeking counsel from God and not seeking counsel from his word and not seeking counsel from others. A multitude of counselors, the Bible says, is what establishes a word. We all think we've heard a word from God, but how many of you know out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, the Bible says a word is established. So we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. We can get an idea in our hearts and think that it's God, but we need to check it with God's word, first of all. And then we need to seek confirmation from God's leadership. Be accountable, uh, be transparent, and over time, sh uh, be sure of the affirmation that can come through God's people and the confirmation that can come from God's word. The next one we see here is resentment. When it's all about you, I gotta tell you, you're in the wrong place. You're seeking the glory. You're seeking the power. If the narrative and what you talk about is your story, what's been done to you or how you've gotten over on others or how you intend to do something and you hear the word over and over again, I, 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 I. I is the middle word of sin. I just want to tell you folks, you're off track when the story is about you and not about the Lord. You're off track when the story is not about how to help others and it's all about how others should be helping you. 
or how others have done something to you. That's the wrong place to be. You're not on God's side when you do that. You're on your side and you're alone. The next red flag is materialistic excess. Gideon takes on people's money and makes for himself an ephod uh, that he wears to set himself up as a priest. And, and I just gotta tell you, I'm not a poverty guy. I believe that God wants us to have good things, but I think for leaders, sometimes we get into a trap. A lot of us, sometimes we get into a place to where we wanna touch the gold and the glory. And uh, God, doesn't, God doesn't want us to be carried away with excess riches. And so even though God wants us to have nice things, if our desire and our heart starts to go towards things and seeking God's hand and not his face, uh, we can get into idolatry. And that's what Gideon does here. He asks all the people for these gold uh, earrings that they get from the spoil of the battle. And he makes this golden ephod with it and it becomes an idol to him. And uh, I'm, I'm really just uh, challenged by this verse that comes out of Proverbs. I've read it several times in my life and it's really caused me to pause and reflect. It's out of Proverbs chapter 30, verse five. And it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. Literally, does this mean that Christians shouldn't save and they shouldn't be good stewards and, and shouldn't have abundance so that they could become givers? No. Literally, it's saying, let me be at that sweet spot with you, God, where I don't have so much of an abundance that I take my eyes off of you and entrusting in you. And that's really where God wants us to be. That's where I want to be. I want to have just enough to do what God's called me to do and enough to give, not enough uh, in my, an abundance in my life that causes me to take my eyes off of God. I like to paraphrase for you what happens in the rest of the story in Judges chapter one through 57. You remember Abimelech, he's that son of Gideon that was named my dad is king. He decides that he is going to get a posse together of men. These are just vagabonds. And he gets them all together and he inscribes them to murder. This is tough. It's one of those rough stories here. To murder all of his brothers, all 69 of them that are left. And so they set out to do just that. And they do. Unfortunately, they do. Uh, but one is left alive and his name is Jotham. Jotham is hiding in a closet and he's the only one left alive. Abimelech thinks they're all dead. So he goes back to the leaders of Israel and he meets them in Shechem. And he says, you know, guess you got to make me king. My dad's dead. All of my brothers are dead. I'm the only one that's left. So I need to be king. And that's what the leaders in Shechem did. They anointed him unfortunately, and they crowned him as king. This was a terrible scandal. First of all, as I told you before, Israel was not supposed to have kings. God and God alone was supposed to be their king. Secondly, they've chosen a brother with a murdering spirit. He's a scoundrel. He's, the, he's a man, but he's a man with a wrong heart. And he, 
He can't possibly lead Israel in the right and just way. And then to top it all off, he goes to Shechem and they crown him king in Shechem. Shechem is a holy place for the Jews at this time. This is a place, this is a place where Abraham received the promise of the Lord. This is a place where God renewed that promise with Joshua. One scholar would say that this place is, and what happens there is so important. It would be like Americans historically going back to Gettysburg today and at Gettysburg reinstituting slavery. It was a huge reverse in the other direction and in a place that was very, very holy and historical to the Jews. It is a place that God has several times in the past brought about the story of slavery. This is the place, Shechem, where all of Joseph's brothers sell him off as a slave and come back to their father and they have his coat covered in blood to show his father that he is dead. This is, a, uh, this is a very, very holy place, but it speaks of a place where God meets people at slavery. Uh, they are becoming slaves to Abimelech here. They're selling themselves out to a man who should not be their king. Well, you remember Jotham, that brother that escaped? Well, he comes out of hiding and he gets in front of Israel's leaders and he actually speaks from the top of a mountain and he tells them a parable about a bunch of trees, a bunch of trees in a forest who decided they wanted to choose a king. So he sets this parable up and he shows the people that they're like a forest of trees choosing a king. First, this forest of trees goes to an olive tree and they say to the olive tree, will you be our king? And the olive tree says, no, I'm getting too rich off of my olive production to be bothered by being your king. Likewise, the fig tree, you know, the fig newtons, they approach every kind of tree. Eventually, even asking, likewise, they approach the fig tree, you know, the fig newtons, and then they approach every kind of tree. They eventually even ask the grapevine, but nobody wants to be bothered with being king. So eventually they find a tumbleweed and they say, will you be our king? And the tumbleweed says, sure, sure. But first you have to burn down all the other trees and they do so. I think Jotham is giving them a parable about what Abimelech has done and preceding Abimelech, what Gideon has done to the people of the nation. And Jotham says to the leaders at Shechem, this is what you have done. This is going to come back on you. Well, sure enough, that happens. Abimelech turns out to be a terrible leader. There's no surprise there. And in Judges 9, it records a very dizzying account of scandal and sabotage and mass murder during Abimelech's reign. Eventually, all of those leaders in Shechem that anointed him revolted against him. So Abimelech and his army has to attack them back. And the people flee to a city tower, which in those days was the final stronghold. And Abimelech takes, ironically enough, a bunch of branches and tumbleweeds and packs them around the base of the tower and then lights it on fire and burns over 1,000 people alive inside. Abimelech then moves to the next city, 
where he drives all the way people back into their tower as well. And he begins to light in on fire. He does the same thing. But here is a funny story. A woman in that tower, she takes a rock. She goes to this window of that tower and she drops it like a millstone. It falls down from the top of that tower, hits Abimelech on the head, knocks him out. He's almost dead, but he's just barely alive. It's kind of like the kitchen appliance that we had talked about weeks ago, that JL took that tent peg to destroy uh, Sisera and be able to bring the victory to Israel. God raises up another woman to be a heroine in that moment and takes out Abimelech. You might say with a kitchen utensil, just as we described a, a few weeks ago with JL. And that's what happens and he dies. You know, these stories aren't very pleasant, are they? But they're stories that we can learn from. Jump down to uh, chapter nine, verse 56, and it says, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had committed against his fathers and killing his 70 brothers upon his head. Verse 57, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham and the son of Jerubbabel. This is interesting because the parable that Jotham had said from the mountain that day at Shechem was really prophetic, and it came about just as he said. And we can learn some principles about this story. It's a horrible story, but it's certainly one that we can learn from. The first one is this. God's judgment is slow, and sometimes it's subtle, but it's always sure. It takes a little bit of deep reading to know, but through chapters 8 and 9, we do not hear God's covenant name not even mentioned once. We see through chapter 8, verse 34, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 6, God isn't mentioned at all. And so we don't get the covenant name or God mentioned at all. You see, this kind of gives us a little bit of a backdrop of how bad things have gotten. They're not even thinking about God. God isn't in the picture at all. And folks, when God isn't in the picture, judgment is coming. When God isn't in the picture of your life, but there's nothing but turmoil and trouble. There's nothing but uh, uh, constant fighting and uh, contention in your heart. You have all these things that are happening to you and you're so concerned about them, or there's things that you've done to others. Maybe you don't have any peace at all and you wonder where God is. That should be the first person you seek. Get God back into the picture. Because with God out of the picture, doesn't matter who you think's right, doesn't matter who has done what to whom, if God isn't in the picture, judgment is coming. I've heard it said that the wheels of God's justice grind slowly but finely. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, that the Lord is not slack. One day is like a thousand years. The Lord is not willing, though, that any should perish. You know, God is coming back soon, and he's not slack in his promise to return to judge this earth. But God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. 
you know, Noah was told by God it was going to be, uh, the earth was going to be flooded and it was going to rain. And Noah, in his faithfulness, began to build a boat. And Noah is called a preacher of righteousness in Hebrews. That means that he preached the truth of the coming judgment. And it took, though, a hundred years to build that boat. So think about it. Every time people pass that boat, every time they walk by Noah, he's there preaching the truth of God's judgment. They had a hundred years to repent, and yet they didn't. I want you to think about another man that's mentioned in the Old Testament, Methuselah. His name actually means something very interesting. When I die, judgment comes. And he lived 969 years. So think about that. Every time somebody said his name, every, every, every time someone came up to him and just said, how you doing, Methuselah? Hey, I'm doing okay. Just by saying Methuselah, his name meant judgment is coming. And so there was a thousand, almost a thousand years, 969 years that he lived, that people are hearing that God's judgment is coming. Even though it's slow and it's subtle, it will surely come to pass. That's that principle. Don't use what God intends to be a short space of time to give you time to repent as God's absence and unwillingness to be just and to judge. Number three, the problem isn't really out there. Folks, I want to tell you the problem really is in here. In fact, I want you to think about this. There really is no special outpouring of judgment in the story. No fire from the sky, no enemy that is raised up, that attacks Israel. God just allowed them to experience the results of their own sinful choices. You see, Gideon's own self-centeredness and glory lust produced a son who murdered all of his brothers so he could be king. Shechem's disregard for God's commands and their self-interest led them to selecting an opportunistic man that was the wrong man to be king. Abimelech's own treachery and backstabbing led to his own downfall. Sin in itself is its own curse. Our sin not God, ends up cursing our lives. And you see, God uses what we go through either to bring us to righteousness or if we continue to sin, we continue to go through it and it becomes our own downfall. That's how just God is. I don't want to be left, folks, to my own doing. I want God to save me from me and save me from my sin and going my own way because my own way is its own recourse and its own judgment on my life. Here's the next one, number four. We need a new king and we need a better judge. But what we really need is a better heart. You know, so often we think the problem is out here. It's in our circumstances and what we go through and what we're suffering or what has happened to us. But the reality is this, the problem is really in our hearts. In just a, a few months, we'll enter an election year. We're looking to probably get a, a man that will bring some change to our country. And I sure hope and pray for that. But the change that's really going to come to our country isn't going to happen at the White House. It's going to happen in God's house. And when we say God's house, I don't mean a church building. What I really mean is our hearts. God's house is our hearts. 
and it's who reigns in our hearts as king and as priest that is needed for change in this country. You see, most of what's going on around us is really just our own hearts manifesting itself into the circumstances that we experience. You see, we really create our own experience by what's happening on the inside. I'm not so concerned anymore in my life about what happens around me. I'm concerned about what happens in me. I want to pray that God comes and, and is king of my heart. I want to pray that God comes and speaks prophetically into my life and that God comes and is my priest and leads me spiritually. Then my life will begin to be lived from the inside out and then change can come to my circumstances. If I ask God to just change my nation or just change my circumstances around me, that won't bring about real change because my heart will still be going my own way. What I really need is a king in here. And that's what Gideon tried to be, but it wasn't his to try. You see, only Jesus could be both king and priest. Only Jesus could wear both the crown and wear the ephod. It wasn't Gideon's place to wear the ephod and to be a priest. It was Jesus's place to be king and priest. And the Bible also says he fulfills that other office as prophet as well. Those are the three offices I want Jesus to fulfill inside of my heart. You see, folks, we don't just need a savior. We are all, I know, looking for a hero, but we don't just need a savior from our circumstances. In fact, our circumstances aren't the real problem. Our situation isn't the real problem. The real problem is we need a savior to fix us and to fix our hearts and to renew our hearts from the inside out. You see, Jesus, in many ways, would be the opposite of Gideon. Unlike Gideon, he had every right to demand to be king. He had every right to wear the ephod because he quite literally is, the Bible says, the tabernacle and the high priest of God. You know, he didn't take the treasures from the people. Jesus, when he came, he didn't call for people to serve him and allow him to be king. He resisted every one of those temptations. And if you remember, it was the devil that tempted him with these things. And really, some of his disciples wanted to set him up as king as well. The people wanted him to save them from their circumstances, which at the time was Rome. And they wanted him to be king over that, but they did not want him to be king over their hearts. And so Jesus went to the cross. He came a humble servant. He sought to serve, not to be served. And he gave his life on the cross. And in the resurrection, God the Father glorified him. And in the ascension, he was glorified. This is why he deserves all the glory, because he didn't come here for the glory. He came here to serve. This is why he should be king, because he didn't come here for the kingship. He didn't come here for the gold and the wealth of the world. He came here to serve and gave his life to serve us. This is why he needs to be true king. And we need to seek him in every reform, not just in the reforms of our nation, we need to seek him in the reforms of our heart. I want to thank you for watching today. I want to thank you for your time. And I want to just close with a word of prayer. 
and ask God to bless you. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I seek your blessing over every life that is watching here tonight. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be upon each and every one, that you would bring peace, love, and joy to their minds and their hearts. May we all, God, on bowed knee and bended knee, seek you to be our king. Not man, not some type of reform that happens in our circumstances or our situations on the outside, but to seek the reform of a king inside of our hearts. I give you praise and I give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again.